0: here and uh, I said this last time I preached, you've probably, if you've been around here, you've noticed that I wear sandals a lot and if you're new, you're probably like, why is this guy wearing sandals and I have, I've, uh, just dealing with foot problems and nerve stuff so the sandals are much more comfortable so please excuse my lack of formal shoe wear. Um, but if you would please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. We are now moving past, we've been in Galatians, and we are on the latter half, finally. And we continue today in Galatians 4. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one on the floor, or you can ask your neighbor. If You can look up them. We'll start in verse 1. I think many of you know this but just to give you a little bit of church history, um, you probably know, many of you probably know the the chapters and the verses in your Bible are not original. When Paul was writing the letter to Galatians, he didn't write a chapter and verse next to every uh, sentence. And um, really in the 12th century, uh, Stephen Langton put uh, chapter divisions in the Latin Vulgate, but the, you can actually find divisions going back to the 4th century, of some, maybe not the exact ones that we use, but some sort of divisions going back to the 4th century. And then uh, Stephanus in 1551 added verse divisions in the Greek New Testament, and those are what we use today. All that to say, the decision of when a chapter starts and ends is not uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Okay. And the only reason I bring that up today is because I think this division of this chapter is not really the best spot. Usually they make more sense. This one I think Paul's concluding what he's talking about in Galatians 3. So there you go. You get a little bit of church history, uh, which fits for today because I think Paul's continuing. So... Um, We'll start in verse 1 in chapter 4. But before I say this, let me say uh, one thing. I think our pastor would love um, for our church to grow in just some of the familial aspects of church life during a service. And so, what I mean by that is uh, one simple way that we can show reverence to God. Maybe you come from a church that does this or did this. Is when the word of the Lord is spoken. Sometimes we've had you stand, but sometimes after the word of the Lord is spoken, the person reading it will say, This is the word of the Lord. And some of you might know what to say. After that, you would say, Thanks be to God. Okay? And it's just a tradition, it's a way to communally say thank you to the Lord for his word. It doesn't, it's not a magic incantation where. If you don't say this, the Lord doesn't bless the reading of his word. But it can be genuinely helpful for us to, to give thanks to God. And so, in the same way that we say, and many of us send our prayers in Jesus' name, amen, it's not as if God doesn't hear our prayers if we don't say in Jesus' name. He hears them. But it can be helpful to remember that we're, we're coming before God, united with Christ, and so we're not coming with our good works, we're coming with Christ's good works, and we're, we're praying in his name. Okay? And that can be helpful. Another thing is, it's a little different because God commands this, what I'm about to talk about, in some places in the Psalms. But some of, some of us need to raise our hands and worship. One, because it's a command. But there's, there's various reasons why it might be helpful for you to raise your hands and worship. <coughs> It's not as if, again, that God doesn't hear your singing or doesn't approve of your singing or doesn't love your singing if your hands are down, okay? But lifting your hands to God in worship is this physical act that can help your heart and your heart's posture before God. And for some of you, it'll be good for you to do that because it'll be a good reminder that God's holy and you're below him. He's set apart, and that'll help Set your heart to revere him. For others of you, it will be good to raise your hands because you just care way too much about what the person next to you is thinking, and you need to stop thinking about yourself and think about God and sing to God. You don't have to worry about, is somebody going to think I'm this crazy, charismatic? You don't have to think your spouse is... My spouse is going to think I'm a hypocrite because I'm raising my hand. You should just raise your hand because you care about obeying God and worshiping God. And so some of you, it'll be good to just start doing it. And for some of you that aren't doing it, that have been here for a long time, I'm going to start talking to you. (laughs) So don't be surprised if I start asking you why you've been here for seven years and you still don't raise your hands. Good. Well, in the same way, we're going to do that this morning. I'm going to read God's word. I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and you will say... My wife will say it. All right. Let's do it. All right. Verse 1. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for your help this morning in understanding this passage rightly. Father, I admit that sometimes I feel weak in my skills to deliver the text accurately, but I trust that you love uh, these people more than I do. And so I ask that you would bless the preaching of your word for your namesake and for the care and blessing of your sheep. May what is true be found helpful in our hearts. And if I speak in error, would that be f- forgotten or corrected in time? And thank you, Father, for the gospel that we are not slaves but heirs. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul begins chapter 4 by talking about being an heir. The Jews were the heirs in this example, and we'll see that in a moment. But he gives an earthly example, as he has in the past, to help us understand the spiritual one. He says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different than a slave. How is that the case? I was an heir, as long as he's a child, no different than a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. I think most of us understand what an heir is, but just in case there's younger people unfamiliar with the Lord, an heir is someone who's legally entitled to the property or rank of another person's, upon another person's death. So a prince is the heir to a throne. You might be familiar with that. When his father dies and his mother dies, he will become king because he's the heir. It's his legal right to become king. You are an heir. I'm an heir, in a sense, to my, to my father. And so when my parents pass, what's theirs will become their children's. Proverbs 13.22 says a good man leaves an inheritance not just to his children, but to his children's children. So upon, it doesn't, upon your, your father or your parents' death, what's theirs will become yours because you're the heir. But it doesn't have to be upon somebody's death. It can be, like the examples I've given. But for instance, a man might have a large enterprise or a company. And he runs this, and his son is the heir. And yes, one day he will inherit everything when his father passes. But even before his father dies, his father may choose to pass along that enterprise and let the son come into leadership, come out from underneath that position that he was previously, and now kind of enjoy uh, the fullness of what it means to be an heir, even though his father is still there. But Paul's point is this. When an heir is young, when he's a child, he's really no different than a slave. Even though technically he's the owner of everything. One pastor used this example, which I think might be helpful for us to understand. The two-year-old son of a billionaire is still a two-year-old son of a billionaire. The two-year-old son of a billionaire with a nanny is not much different than the nanny or anybody else that's hired help, even though he's the owner of everything, even though he has the same last name. Even though he's a two-year-old billionaire, in a sense, he carries the family name, he's in line to take the family fortune. When he's a child, he's really no different than the nanny. He gets bossed around in the same way that the nanny is bossed around or somebody else is told to go do this, he's told to go do that, he's not really in charge. He doesn't have the freedom to do whatever he wants. And so this two-year-old billionaire isn't much different than the slave, though he's the owner of everything, because he's under a guardian, under managers, verse 2 says, until the date set by his father. This was Israel under the law. If you remember last time I preached... And this is why I think the paragraph fits better in chapter 3. Paul uses these examples to explain the law and its relationship to Israel. And first of all, he talks about in 322 and 23, he talks about the law as being a, a prison. Okay? And then he starts talking about how the law is a guardian, is what the ESV translates it as. Some translations talk about it as a schoolmaster or tutor. and That's the example that he uses of the law. Now he's talking about Israel before Christ has come and saying that while they were under the law, they were like the two-year-old billionaire. Yes, they were the people of God. Yes, they were sons of God. But they hadn't experienced yet fully the fullness of what God was doing through creation. This doesn't mean that old Israel was somehow less loved by God or that they were lesser sons Not at all. They were fully sons of God with real faith and their consciences were sprinkled clean before God. And those who really understood the scriptures they knew something was coming. They knew there were prophecies that would one day be fulfilled. And this is what Peter talks about in 1 Peter in chapter 1. He says concerning the salvation the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or time the spirit of christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of christ and the sub- subsequent glories it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that nay and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the holy spirit sent from heaven things to unto which angels long to look but that doesn't change the fact before Christ came, the law was this guardian of God's people. They were under the schoolmaster, and they hadn't fully experienced everything that God was doing in his plan for salvation. God had a plan. He gave them the law that was part of the plan, but that wasn't the whole thing. It was training them for what was to come. All the ceremonies, all the blood, all the sacrifices pointing to what And who was to come. And so, in a sense, they weren't much different than a slave, which would have been somewhat insulting for the Jews to hear, I would imagine. But it's the truth. And so, he makes this point very clear in verse 3. He says, In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Paul is saying that when we were children of the law, we were treated like servants and prisoners. We were oppressed by the law. When Paul refers to the law as elementary principles of the world, some of your translations might say elements of the world. He's not talking about earth, wind, and fire, kind of what makes up our planet. He's talking about how the law is this earthly thing. It's this mundane thing. It's, it's of this world. It, it can be helpful in restraining evil on this planet. If you remember us, few weeks ago talking about the three purposes of the law but it doesn't deliver anybody from their sin the law never brought salvation or justification no one was justified by doing the law because you try really hard to obey god and follow the ten commandments that will not get you into heaven you not committing adultery or honoring your father and mother are not lying those things are good things but they will not get you into heaven by trying to do those well you're not a christian because you try to do those things That is not what the law was ever for. It was not there to justify us. In fact, it can't. All it can do is condemn. And so in this way, the the law is earthly. It's not heavenly. It's the elementary principles of the world. Don't kill. Don't murder. Pretty basic elementary principle of the world except for the fact that it condemns us because Jesus says that we're angry at our brother, that we've murdered him in our heart, and the law finds us guilty. And it condemns you. And so in a sense, you're a slave to it because the law enslaves you. You're guilty. You have not obeyed it perfectly. These ceremonies and these cleansings and sacrifices that were part of the law. Remember, Paul Remember, keeps saying this. when, When Paul's talking about the law, he's not just talking about the commands of God. He's talking about the ceremonies. He's talking about the feast. He's talking about the sacrifices. Those things were the mundane matters that could never actually save a sinner. And so in that sense, the sla- the law is a slave master. If the law is doing its job correctly, it should make us long. If the law is doing its job correctly, it should make you long for someone who's going to set you free from this bondage of slavery. And that person... Who will free us is of course our Savior Jesus Christ. Romans ten five excuse me, Romans ten four, Paul says this, for Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. And Martin Luther he said Christ relieves the conscience of the law. Now Luther and Paul are not implying that the law is bad. I think we've made that clear. They do not have disdain for the law. They are not saying you should despise the law or that it's useless and you should just forget it. Young Christians have this problem because they don't think critically enough of what Paul's talking about, and so they think they see law and they just think commandments when they're reading Galatians. And so they read through Galatians real fast and they get this impression that the law is bad. And then they get all mixed up when they read the Psalms and they hear the psalmist talking about how much they love the law. How good it is. And then they get mixed up when they see that Paul, in Romans, he's talking about how the law is holy and the commandment is holy and it's righteous and good. And so you're kind of thinking, is the law good or is it bad? And I hope you've made it clear. The law is great. You should love the law. You should think, but you shouldn't think, rather, that obedience to the law justifies you and makes you right with God. That is what Paul is attacking. When Paul is speaking harshly, he's he's speaking harshly of the misuse of the law. If you misuse the law and you try to use it to justify you, to climb the ladder by showing God how high you can climb and how much you can obey and get up to heaven, that's when the law needs to be attacked and put back into its proper place. And that's what Paul is doing. If the law tries to be lord of your conscience, it's bad and needs to be put back in its place. Now, I know... Most of you in this room, you've had this nailed in your head over the last few months. You know, no one can be justified through the law. I know that. I've heard that for many years. I know. You cannot be saved by the law. You know, faith alone saves. And yet, you still don't live like it. What do I mean by that? What do I mean when I say that Christ is the Lord of your conscience, not the law? Well, here's some examples. Many of you in this room, from time to time, you struggle with your assurance of salvation. You sin and you think, am I actually saved? Does God really love me? How could I be this bad? Well, what's going on in your heart? You're thinking you're living as if you're justified by the law. So when you're doing well, well enough to your satisfaction, you feel pretty good with God. But when you fail, you feel totally alienated, like he's, he's done with you. And this isn't just for people that struggle with assurance of salvation. You feel like you've sinned too much to be forgiven. Well, the law has enslaved your thinking, and you're thinking that you could be made right with God if you were good enough, if you had obeyed enough. You think God is treating you harshly because you disobeyed yesterday or a week ago. That all God does is live to just punish you once you make your mistake for all your wrongs. And you treat God so poorly because God is so gracious and patient with his people. He always has been. And you then you but you just start to think he's just there to punish you. He's just there to discipline. And you've got him backwards. And you think you're right standing with God he comes because you obeyed the law. This is not how it works. Moms, you live under the law. When your kids disobey for the thousandth time and they've been up for two hours. What do I mean? You think, I must be an awful mom because my kids can't get it together. And God just has to be displeased with me. God could not be happy with with our family and this big mess. Wives, you feel like a failure because you get in conflicts with your husband. And so because there's conflicts and it's not perfect, you must have an awful marriage that cannot be in any way pleasing to God. Because the only way to be, have a pleasing marriage to God is no conflicts and being perfectly happy. And you have conflicts and you fight. So therefore, no way God could ever be pleased with you and your marriage. Fathers, you live under the law when you think that the only options that you have are to provide for your family and lead your wives, and then if there's any way that there's struggles in those things, you think God is just burdensome with all his demands. Yes, you are commanded to provide for your family and to lead your wives, but just like that song that we sang, what if you're praying and God has a different purpose to not answer those prayers for you to provide perfectly in the way that you think you need to provide. Is God just a a harsh slave master? You feel like a failure before God because you can't keep your boss happy? A person who finds their identity in their sins or thinks about their sins too much is living as if they could just get rid of that sin, they could be more right with God. They could finally be accepting, accepted by God. For some of you you might you might be focusing so much on one sin. So much struggle, so much focus on one particular sin, you end up finding your identity based on have I done this? Have I not done this? If I haven't, I'm feeling pretty good. If I have, God just doesn't want to be around me. There's failure everywhere in our lives because sin still exists. And so many of you know, yes, we are justified by faith alone. But we still live as if the only way that God is ever happy with us and pleased with us is if we're successfully obeying him and keeping his commands perfectly. But we're just living as if we can be justified by works of the law, even though you can't. It will never happen. You will have tons of failure. And if you think that you're going to get it all together and then finally God will be pleased with you, well, you'll be under the slave master, the slave of the law. You'll be no different than a slave. Now, God will sanctify us. You will be different in three decades than you are now if you continue to walk with the Lord. The Spirit changes us and sanctifies us. That is really happening in real ways. And you're slowly changed from one degree of glory to the next. But it's slow. And there will still be failure at the end of your life. You will go to your grave and you will have big failures still in your life. Now, the things I've mentioned, there's many more that you might be thinking of. They're good to strive towards. God does command us to obey. You should work to teach your kids to obey. You should work on your marriage. You should work to be a good employee, to be a loving daughter or son. But you have to be honest and live in reality that there will always be failure everywhere. Always. And if you think you're going to get anywhere close to perfect it'll be slavery. I've talked about how we live under the law when we're discouraged about our sins and we feel like we lose God's love because of our disobedience. There's actually another way we try to live by works of the law, and it's just the opposite side of the coin. Satan will try to do two things when it comes to the law. One, he'll try to do what I've just talked about. He'll try to make you feel like a failure, like you need to keep up to it. You need to you need to attain this. And then you can't. And then he's happy to make you feel like a failure. Okay? But the other way that Satan tries to attack Christians is that actually helping you keep the law. It might sound strange. How in the world... Does Satan attack me by helping me keep the law? How is that even possible? Well, Satan is happy for you to obey the law. He's happy for you to obey the commands of God if you do it on your own strength and you feel like it makes you right with God. He's happy for you to go be obedient to the Ten Commandments if it puffs you up with pride He's all for it. He's happy to help you be a good wife or a good husband, an excellent churchman, and feel like your obedience is gaining you, standing before God, because if you're living as if obedience to the law is how you attain righteousness, well, really what's going to happen is you will be a monster and a slave driver to everyone else around you. You will make everybody else's life a living hell, because they cannot live up to your standards. Parents do this to their kids all the time. Parents, some of you burden your kids, and you teach them through how you treat them, how your actions, that the only way to please God is through the obedience of your rules. When they fail, you make them feel rotten for their failure, and you oppress them by how harsh you are to them. You're teaching them that the only way to get a parent's pleasure, the only way to get God's pleasure, is by keeping the law. And when they fail, they're only a disappointment to you, and the discipline and the passive-aggressive words or attitudes, you're teaching them to live as if they can attain their righteousness by works of the law. I've seen many wives over the last ten years be so oppressive to their husbands because they think their husbands are not loving them well enough. They're not serving their wives as Christ serves the church. And therefore, they are, they are ready to tell them that they are not doing so. They withhold intimacy from their husband because he's not up to snuff. And she feels like she's being a great wife and very pleasing to God. But her husband, he has a long way to go. The reality is the husband does have a long way to go. But so does she. And actually, one of the ways that God has designed your husband to to become a better husband and a man of God is, is with you as his helper. But what you think... Helper means is that you're his boss, you're, slave, you're his slave master. You are there to remind him of all of his shortcomings and his failures of how he has not loved you properly. No, you are to give yourself in service to your husband. And if you're tempted to think, but if I, if I don't withhold intimacy, if I don't manipulate him in this way, He's never going to actually get better at X, whatever it is. I'm telling you that your life and your husband very well may never get better. And your marriage will grow in bitterness because you are living as if your husband's righteousness could be attained by the law. And that yours is because you are such a great wife. Imagine if God only came close to you if you were perfectly obedient. Well, some of us live like that, and that's how we treat others. Satan is happy to help you be a great wife, if that's what it's going to mean. Satan's happy for you to be a great husband if you'll make your wife feel like she's never able to do enough to keep the family in a good place. Your wife is never heard and never appreciated. She's only heard and appreciated when there's success and it lives up to your standard. But even then, she's just doing her job. You don't show her love or affection unless she's doing it right and the the house is in order and the kids are doing perfectly. She's just a drag on you, but you have great godliness. Some of you think that you're much better and godlier than the other people sitting around you, and you wouldn't admit it into this microphone, but you think it. You're more thoughtful, you're wiser, you know better, you're the better Christian. God's more pleased in you because of how great you are, at least compared to this weaker saint who just seems to never be able to get their stuff together. Sure, I know God loves them, but he's always kind of softly annoyed with them, and he really enjoys me. No. You oppress everyone with your pride, and you burden others with your laws. This is what the Pharisees did. They made their own standards, and when people didn't live up to them, they oppressed them, and it's still happening in our church today. See, Satan will help you obey the commandments He will help you feel like you are doing great if you'll be prideful about it and you'll oppress others. The sad part is this side of the coin is much harder for those who are living in it to see it because you often think you're so godly, so you think, of course, I know I'm saved by grace. I know this for years, but functionally you're living as if you're saved by works. And so you can live by the law, by being totally burdened and overwhelmed from your sin and your failure to keep it, so you feel terrible. That's one way you can live by the law. Or you can live by the law thinking you're awesome and thinking you've gained righteousness. Verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, So that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. When we read our Bibles, we're often tempted to just focus on ourselves and we think about how does this pertain to me, and what does this mean for my relationship with God. And that's not necessarily wrong. But there's and while there's certainly personal elements in this passage, it's important to remember that what Paul is talking about here is salvation in a larger context. He's not just talking about your relationship with God, though it's affected by this. Israel as a whole, as the whole people of God, they were under the schoolmaster of the law. They were heirs, they were like the two-year-old billionaire. Not all the different than a slave, and the law condemned them, but they, were, they knew a savior was coming that would free them in a sense, that free, would free them in a sense from the law, the Messiah. And just like the Father who set the date for the two-year-old billionaire to come to age, God the Father had a plan for all of creation, when Christ would come and change the whole course of this world. God had a plan of when the fullness of time had come, God, sent, God the Father sent His Son. We again, you see that God existed, or excuse me, the Son existed before. He was sent, he wasn't made. He was born of a woman, so he was God and fully man, and he had submitted himself to the man's of the law. The lawgiver submitted himself to the very law that he gave. <laughs> Jesus was the second and better Adam. Adam was born, and he was tempted by Satan, he failed. He was tempted in the garden this Adam this better Adam he was tempted by satan in the wilderness and he did not sin said he kept the law perfectly he kept it perfectly he should have lived in perfect peace and yet that's not what happened he was punished by the jews for his obedience he did nothing wrong, and yet the Jews killed him. But even at his death, this was God's plan for him to be crushed, because his plan was to obey the law so that he might be the one who's able to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might be able to receive adoption as sons. And so our sin was placed on a sinless Savior. The Jews put him on a cross, and the Father forsook him and his wrath, and he poured his wrath out against him. And he punished Jesus for the sins of the world. And Jesus drank the cup fully. There was no wrath left for us. Our sins had been taken care of. And because of that, we have been washed clean and made right with God. See, God the Father required a sacrifice to be paid for sins. And he accepts Jesus' sacrifice. So Jesus put himself in our place to redeem us so that we can enjoy life as heirs. But not like the two-year-old billionaire. Not that kind of heir who is under a guardian. We are not slaves to the law. We are slaves to Christ, which is freedom. And we're going to continue to see that as we go through Galatians. We are heirs now with the Jews. In the fullest sense. But that bothered some of them. Clearly bothered them this whole book, this whole letter, they're clearly bothered of it. But this is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 20. I'll just run through this really quickly. If you don't remember the parable of the workers in the vineyard, basically, this master goes out and he hires some workers to work in the early morning, and he says, I'll 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 pay you one day's wage. You work for me all day. Say, sure. They agree to it. A few hours pass. He needs some more help, so he goes out, finds some more help. Says, Hey, come work for me for the rest of the day. I'll pay you what's fair at the end of the day. Needs more help a few hours later. It's getting the afternoon. Finds more help. Hey, come work for me. I'll pay you what's fair at the end. The eleventh hour comes. There's one more hour of work left. Sun's starting to go down. Needs some more he comes out, he sees these people standing around. He says, What are you guys doing? Why are you not working? He says, well, nobody hired us. He said, come, like, come work for me this last hour. I'll pay you at the end. The end of the day comes. Master says to the foreman, hey, gather everybody up. Let's pay them. You start with the person who was hired first, so the 11th hour, they worked one hour, okay? And they paid him one day's wage, one denarius, which if you remember, that's the same amount that the people who were hired at the beginning of the day said that they would work for. So they worked one hour, got paid one denarius. So when those who worked all day long got up to get their money, they're thinking, well, we're going to get paid pretty well if that guy worked one hour, and he got $500. We're going to get way more than $500. They get their money. It's the same amount as the person who worked one hour. And so they're grumbling, and they're complaining about how it's not fair. Why, did, you know, why didn't we get paid, like, more? We worked more. Worked all day in the scorching heats, and these, come, these guys come in last minute and they get the same money as us. It's not fair. And the master replies, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did not you agree with me for one denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity so the last will be first? and the first last. And this is a parable about how Jesus is grafting in into his plan of salvation. In the 11th hour, the Gentiles, they had not been living under the law. They were pagans. Their fathers were pagans. They did not obey the law of God. They didn't obey God. They didn't follow the law like Israel did. They weren't circumcised. They didn't do the same ceremonies or the sacrifices, any of that stuff. And here they are being given full salvation Full sonship at the last minute. It's not fair. But that's the beauty of the gospel. It's not fair. Christ took all our sin so that he could redeem us. It isn't fair. We don't get what we deserve, we get what Christ deserved. And God's pleasure in us is not dependent on our ability to keep the law. If that was so, God would never be pleased with us. But we are one with Christ. And so when God looks at you, he sees Christ and he is pleased, and that should be the most, true, the most freeing thing in your life. That should totally change how you live your life before God and others because now your, assur- your assurance of salvation, it has nothing to do with your ability to keep the law and obey God. Nothing to do with it. It's secured because Christ secured your adoption by purchasing it for you. You don't have to wonder if you're too big of a sinner to be saved, if you've done too many things, because every single sin, big or small, was paid for on the cross. You can have confidence that God isn't some bully waiting to pounce on every wrong that you've done. If you have faith, you have a broken and contrite heart, God promises he will not despise that. You sin and you come before Him, and He's not there to severely punish you. Sure, He may discipline you, but God's discipline always leads to you feeling more loved by your Heavenly Father than you did before as you see His mercy to you. Always. You never receive the punishment you deserve, you never get the punishment you deserve. Sure, it might be a slap on the wrist, it might sting a bit, but it's not forever. And God does not withhold his love, even in the midst of discipline. In fact, the fact that you're getting disciplined is proof that you're actually an adopted son. So just like a good parent might spank their kids, but they don't just spank them. A good parent doesn't just spank them and yell at them and then just kick them out of the room. Sure, some parents might do that. That's not good parenting. Any parents who love their kids, who spank their kids, like their heavenly Father who spanks us, knows that some of the sweetest moments of your parenting in your entire life comes after you've spanked your kids. Those are some of the sweetest moments that you'll ever have with your children. They will sit on your lap, and you will comfort them, and you will assure them of your love. And they will know that sin hurts. But they will know Dad loves them. Some of the sweetest moments with my kids has been right after we've spanked them. And you're holding them. And they're still kind of crying a little bit. But you're talking with them and comforting them. And they feel and know that their dad loves them, and they are your daughter or your son. Yes, da- dad spanked me, but he did so because he loves me, and he's trying to train him, train me, and I love him. And if you have young kids, and that's not the that's not true of you, come talk to us, because we would love to help you with your discipline of your children. Because of Christ, moms, you don't have to feel like a failure when your kid is disobeying for the 100th time or lies for the, the 50th time. Yes, there's work to do. But God is pleased with you, not because of your ability to get your kids under control and perfectly fixed today, but because Christ and your faith in him. God will help you parent your kids. It is a lot of work. It's not going to be perfect it's not going to get all fixed today. But your status as a Christian parent isn't dependent on whether or not your kids obey you perfectly. Husbands, yes, you are called to provide and love your wife. But when there are trials and you feel like you you can't do it, it's not working out the way that you were hoping, or there's conflict in your marriage, that doesn't mean that God is just upset with you. In fact, God might be allowing this very trial to help you and your family trust Him more those of you on the other side of the coin who think you can keep the law, if you're a parent, and you try to make your kid prove to themselves in order for you to give their approval, they have to obey or else you're disappointed. You don't have to do that. You're free to give yourself and to the love of your children even when they fail. You do not have to have a hard line thinking that if I'm... If I' soft, they're not going to obey me. How soft and patient is God with you and your disobedience. Wives who think that it's your job to straighten your husband's out, you can give yourself freely to your husband and love him in all of his weaknesses and his many, many failures. Trust me, we are aware of the many, many failures of the husbands here. you can love him because Christ loves and takes pleasure in your weak husband. He really enjoys your husband and you should really enjoy your husband. You can have real fellowship and pleasure with your husband even in the midst of all the shortfalls. You don't have to have stricter standards of acceptance than God has. Do not have stricter standards of acceptance than God's has. It's not Christian. And husbands who oppress your wives by making them feel like they have to be perfect in order to get your love, that is not how God treats you. So do not treat them like that. Do not make them feel like they have to obtain your love by works of the law, by following your rules. They have your father's love because Christ loves them. And so you love them freely in the same way because of Christ. This is actually how God helps the church grow as we love one another and our weaknesses and our love helps us grow into godliness. Christian, you cannot get closer to God. You cannot not get closer to God. You can't do something that's going to be like, now my relationship with God, now we're really united. It's incredible. You can't gain more favor with God. You are already sons and daughters. There is nothing you can do to make yourself more pleasing to God because Christ alone has secured your standing. God the Father cannot love the Son any more than he already does. He fully loves him, and so he fully loves you. And so you can call to him through the Spirit, Abba Father. People talk about Abba kind of means daddy. It's this intimate way of God calling father, and that's true in the sense, but you remember that when we call God Abba, we immediately are also praying, hallowed be thy name. And so there's this sweet intimacy, but it doesn't mean we lose any reverence for God and his holiness. You can cry out to God because you're not a slave. You're an heir. You're not an enemy, but a son. Do you need something from your father? Do you need him to care for you? Don't ever think he's not answering just because he's mean or because you sinned yesterday and so therefore he must be holding a grudge. That is not the gospel. Christ has secured your heavenly standing with the Father and he loves you. He wants to hear from you. He wants you to call to him. So call to him and pray and have confidence and assurance that he is pleased with you because he is pleased with Christ. Okay. Stand for prayer please. for your patience. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that we cannot do anything else to obtain more love. We can't be closer than a son and an heir. Father, thank you that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. Instead, you treat us as Christ deserves. Father, this is good freedom. This is joyful. This is something that we are thankful for. I pray that you would help it affect every way that we live. That we would treat others the way that you treat us. That we would be gracious to others as you have been gracious to us. That we would be secure. Not because of what we've done and what we're doing or what we're not doing. We would be secure because we remember what Christ did. We ask this in Jesus' name.